The following message by Dr. Matt Thornton is part of a series through the book of Habakkuk entitled, The Just Shall Live by Faith. If you would like more information on this message, you can view the description of this sermon audio available for free on all major podcast formats. For more information on what we believe, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. And now, here's Dr. Matt Thornton. Have you ever been speechless? Something maybe happened to you that was so memorable, so historic, so breathtaking. Maybe something left you feeling so small in the grand scheme of things that you were just in this hushed awe. That happened to one of the most famous and most regarded television journalists of all time. Walter Cronkite was an on-site reporter in, during World War II. He reported on German bombing raids, on the invasion of North Africa, and even D-Day. He covered the, assassina- the assassination of President Kennedy. He reported on the Vietnam War. He was called the most trusted man in America. One person described Cronkite as tough, skeptical, a reporter's reporter, and another said he possessed an uncanny ability to extemporize verbally. But when this seasoned, tough, trusted man with this great gift of gab covered the Apollo 11 moon landing in 1969, he did not know what to say. He was overwhelmed. Live on air, Cronkite took off his glasses, wrung his hands together, shook his head, and looked over at astronaut Wally Shira, who was broadcasting with him. And Cronkite said, Wally, say something. I'm speechless. This morning we'll finish God's prophetic response about judging Babylon, and we'll see two more sins mentioned, the sins of violence and destruction, and the sin of idolatry as well. And we'll discuss those sins and we'll learn their dangers. But when this chapter concludes, we should find ourselves speechless in God's presence. Let's look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15 through 20. Let's read together, starting in verse 15. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land of the city, and of all that dwell therein. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it, the molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols? Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake! To the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver. And there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. 
Once again, beginning in verse 15, this section begins with this ominous word, woe. If you remember from last week, this has the idea of impending doom, divine destruction and judgment would come upon Babylon for her sins. Now, the overall sin mentioned in, in 15 through 17 is violence and destruction. But Babylon was known for her drunkenness. And so drunkenness is also used in these verses as a major illustration of violence. So there's sort of two levels to this, two warnings that we can take away from these verses this morning. And the first one is on this, this personal level, on an individual level. We need to pay attention to the Bible's warnings about abusing alcohol. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. The Apostle Paul listed drunkenness as an evil work of the flesh in Galatians. In multiple places, he urged his readers to be sober. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul said, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. As a Christian, you should not let alcohol guide and control your life. You are filled with the Spirit and let the Holy Spirit of God guide and control your life. And there's one reason maybe one of many, but one reason the Bible has so many warnings about drunkenness is because it's similar to covetousness. You may remember from last week that I mentioned one, one terrible thing about covetousness is that it leads to other sins. If you covet something, you may steal to get it. You may lie to get it. You may kill to get it. And so covetousness produces other evil things and so often and so easily, drunkenness does the same thing. It's not breaking news for me to stand here this morning and say that when people are drunk, they make bad decisions. They stumble and stagger, pun intended, into even more wickedness. Under the influence of alcohol, men make terrible decisions that they would never make sober. They hurt themselves. They hurt their loved ones, both physically and emotionally. They make extremely immoral decisions. God forbid they get behind the wheel of a car. And in verse 15, the Babylonians are likened to those people. They are likened to that man who, who not only gets drunk himself, but invites his neighbor to get drunk with him, which leads into all sorts of immorality and wickedness. Don't be like Babylon. Don't let your judgment be impaired by alcohol. Don't let it bring even more sin into your life. One drunken decision can ruin your life. Be warned. And so that's, that's part of the, the personal or individual takeaway from the illustration is that, that idea that drunkenness will destroy your life. But this idea of drinking is also used to describe the idea of wrath and destruction. It describes how the cup of Babylon's wrath brought destruction upon other nations. And that's something that we see throughout the Bible. Uh, throughout the Bible, 
judgment or destruction, things of that nature, are depicted as someone drinking from a cup. The imagery is not unique to Habakkuk. We see it throughout the Bible. Jesus used that figure the night he was betrayed when he was about to drink his cup of suffering, the cup of suffering for the whole world. What did he pray? Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This was also a familiar figure of the Lord's judgment in the Old Testament as well. Uh, one scripture that, that uses this is Jeremiah 25 and verse 15, where the Lord tells Jeremiah, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So this, this, this depiction of drinking a cup as, as, as a form of wrath or judgment is not unique to Habakkuk, but it's definitely involved here in this context. In fact, in verse 15, this word the King James translates as, as bottle. It's used about 125 times in the Old Testament, but it's only translated as bottle twice. The word really means wrath, fury, rage, anger. And so some modern translations bring this idea out. The ESV simply says, you pour out your wrath and make them drunk. The New American Standard uses the word venom. You mix in your venom. And the New English translation says, you force them to drink from the bowl of your furious anger. So when, Habakkuk, when Babylon forced other nations to drink the cup of her wrath, they were forcing these other nations to become drunk. And the idea of drunkenness here, one author says it indicates helplessness. The nations that the Babylonians captured and destroyed were as helpless, as exposed, as humiliated, as a staggering drunk. But Babylon would not get away with this violence and destruction that she poured out on other people. In verse 16, we see one more time that, that things would quickly turn on her one day. And the illustration of drunkenness continues in a very, very grotesque way here. We are told that she would be filled with shame instead of glory. The word filled in verse 16 is a word used of eating or drinking when someone would, would eat and drink to their satisfaction, to their fullness. They didn't want any more. They were filled up. This word's actually the same word that we saw last week used in verse 5 that talked about how death is never satisfied. Death is never filled and content. But the Babylonian Empire would one day be stuffed with shame instead of honor. And they would be so stuffed with shame that they couldn't keep it down. And that's the idea in verse 16 at the end of the verse of this phrase, shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. You may have a translation that just says disgrace or shame instead of this spewing word. But this image in the Hebrew gives us a picture of a man who is so drunk and so full that he is vomiting all over himself and even soiling himself. It's a very grotesque and picturesque image. 
God through Habakkuk is telling, telling the people who will read this that Babylon, who shamed other nations with her wrath, would one day become so drunk with shame that she would vomit all over her former glory. She would be helpless. She would be exposed. She would be humiliated, just like those nations that she conquered. And if you ask yourself, how in the world is that going to happen? How could, how could this happen to such a powerful empire like Babylon? Well, verse 16 tells us it would be the Lord's doing. This would happen when they drunk the cup of the Lord's right hand. And this reminds us of the fact that God is ultimately sovereign. As powerful as Babylon would become, she would never become more powerful than God. She would never fall outside of the realm of God's control and God's judgment. At the appointed time, God would force Babylon to drink from his wrath. In about 539 B.C., Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians just 23 years after King Nebuchadnezzar's death. Ironically, and I guess maybe we would even say fittingly, on the night Babylon fell to, to the Medes and Persians, there was a wild drinking party going on in the palace at Babylon that night. You can read that story in Daniel chapter 5. Babylon was literally drunk the night she figuratively drunk the cup of God's judgment. As I mentioned earlier, the judgment in these verses or the sin in these verses, you know, drunkenness is mentioned, but in verse 17 we see that the the main sin here is violence and destruction. And look again in verse 17, and you notice this is not limited to violence against people. See the phrase early in verse 17 that talks about the violence of Lebanon. Lebanon was known for their majestic forests, for these great, great trees and, and woodlands. And so this refers to how Babylon and their armies would march through lands just destroying the environment needlessly devastating lands that she marched through for no reason. You see a little bit later on in the verse the idea of the spoil of beasts. And this refers to the Babylonian practice of slaughtering animals, needlessly, aimlessly killing animals as they marched through uh, lands and took over cities. And you know, God actually cares about animals. Animals are part of God's creation too. Do you remember how the book of Jonah ends? It ends rather abruptly as God is, is still trying to teach the prophet Jonah that he cares for his creation, even the non-Jews of his creation, even those people that Jonah may not love and may not like, even the wicked city of Nineveh. But the book abruptly ends as God even mentions, you know, I care about the cows in Nineveh, Jonah. I care about the cattle. Babylon had no care, no concern, no respect for any of God's creation. One author says this, It is one thing to rule over creation, 
respecting it as God's creation entrusted to one for the moment. It is quite another thing to exploit it unmercifully as though it belonged to one absolutely, as though one were not accountable for, uh, for it to its creator. Listen, as Christians, we should respect this earth. We should respect our environment. We should respect and care for animals. And I know I'm not going to say this in the politically correct way, but it's not because we're tree-hugging hippies. But it's because we see in the word of God that this whole universe is part of God's glorious creation that he will one day fully redeem. And we understand that God gave us dominion over it for a time as his stewards, as his caretakers of it. Don't be like Babylon and just destroy animals, destroy things aimlessly and needlessly to show your power and your ability to destroy Of course, the Babylonians didn't stop with trees and animals and things like that. Worse, their violence destroyed other human beings who were created in God's image. No respect for life. Listen, God does not turn a blind eye to individuals or nations who maliciously destroy His creation. At the appointed time, People will answer for their destructive and violent practices. Christians are not to be instruments of destruction. We're to be good stewards of what God has given us, good caretakers. We should build things up, not tear things down. Before we look at the last few verses about idolatry, it would be a fair question to wonder how this is fair to Babylon, right? How is it fair that God would judge Babylon for what they did when it was God who raised them up in the first place, when it was God who said, I'm going to use them to judge the sins of my people? Well, part of the answer is found in Isaiah 47 and verse 6. And God tells Isaiah, and, and he's speaking to Babylon, and God says this, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage I gave them into your hand, you showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. And Jeremiah the prophet deals with this a little bit as well. And he, he talks about Babylon rejoicing in their devastation and in their conquering people like a calf frolicking in a field. The point in Isaiah and Jeremiah is, is this. That even though God raised up Babylon and used them as his rod of judgment, Babylon went too far. And they enjoyed it a little too much. And so God would turn their malicious violence and their destruction and turn it back on them. God is always in control. And then we get in verse 18 and 20, 18 through 20, and there's this. There's this rather abrupt shift from uh, drunkenness and, and destruction to idol worship. So idolatry is the final sin condemned of the Chaldeans. And it, it may seem like an abrupt shift, and in a way it is. But if you, if you think about it, all of these other sins mentioned, and all sins really, are a rejection of God and a rejection of His standard. And that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is a rejection of 
of God. So let's read verse 18 through 20 once again together. Verse 18, Habakkuk wonders and questions, What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake! To the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In verse 18, even before the woe found in verse 19, Habakkuk questions the benefit of trusting in something that man can carve himself. What is the profit? What's the advantage? What's the benefit of of placing your trust in something that you made, that you built? Why would you do that? Why would you worship something, trust something, rely on something that's obviously less than you because you created it? And so this idol is labeled as a teacher of lies because it gives the worshiper false hope. It is a lie that that block of wood or that piece of stone can do anything for the one worshiping it. Verse 18 says, it is a dumb idol. The word dumb here doesn't refer to its IQ, but it refers to its inability to respond, its inability to speak. It's mute. No matter how much you beg and plead and cry to an idol for an answer, it will not answer you. It never will. It can't. It's nothing. Even the word idol here at the end of the verse has the idea of a non-entity. It is a, it is a nothing. That's what an idol is. A mute Nothing. And so for the final time in this chapter, we see in verse 19 our word for impending doom. Woe! Divine destruction will come upon idol worshipers. Anyone who trusts in a nothing, anyone who thinks they will receive guidance, direction, instruction from an idol, they will receive doom from the Almighty God. And the reason they'll never receive guidance and instruction and help from these idols, Habakkuk tells us why, and we know why. It's because there's no life in them. They're overlaid with gold and silver. They're covered with metal. It's it's nothing more than a blasphemous decoration. It's not worth anything more than the metal that's coating it. And Habakkuk says, there is no breath at all in the midst of it. This word for breath here, it's not the same word used in Genesis to describe God breathing life into man, but it's still worth noting the contrast. A human being has life in him Because of God. So why in the world would a human 
construct a lifeless image and then worship that image instead of worshiping the living God who gave life. An idol is lifeless, spiritless, powerless. It cannot speak. It cannot hear. It cannot help. It cannot act. It is worthless and useless. On a recent Wednesday evening, we studied the story in 1 Kings of the prophet Elijah facing off with those 450 prophets of Baal. And those 450 false prophets tried to get the false god Baal's attention that day. And I want you to notice what the Bible said about that. In 1 Kings, we read in the middle of verse 26, They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Idols are nothing. And I think we understand that. And it's probably a little comical even for us to think of a man cutting down a tree, carving an image, putting it up on his table, and kneeling down to this carved image of wood or of stone and saying, Please wake up! Please help me! I need you! Why won't you listen? Please help! And we probably think, man, I'm not guilty of that. I would never do that. But listen, you do not have to kneel down in front of a statue to be an idol worshiper. You are an idol worshiper in your heart if God does not hold the top priority. If there is something more important to you than God, you are idolatrous. If there is something that you desire more than God, you are an idol worshiper. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 that covetousness is idolatry. And so what do you desire more than God? That's an idol. And that could be anything. It could be money, fame, power, TV, sports, Hollywood, music, uh, uh, happiness. You name it. And those things aren't necessarily bad. But if you let anything or anyone hold the top spot in your heart other than God, you are guilty of idolatry. It may look a little different than the idolatry of the Babylonians, but it's just as wrong. And I think that's why modern-day idolatry is so dangerous. is because it's not as obvious. It probably doesn't involve kneeling before statues in our lives. 
But these other things that aren't bad in and of themselves can threaten to dethrone God in our hearts if we're not careful. Guard your heart and make sure that nothing and no one is ever more important to you than God. Idols, no matter the shape, the size, the smell, are useless and powerless. And you contrast this picture of a useless, dead idol to the sovereign picture of the Lord given in verse 20. Habakkuk writes, as the Lord is revealing to him in verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. An idol has to be formed and put somewhere by its maker. And wherever that idol is placed, it stays there. It's unable to move, unable to hear, unable to respond, unable to do anything. But God Almighty reigns sovereignly from His throne in His holy temple. The King of the universe, ready, willing, and able to respond to the cries of His people. Hasn't He already done that twice with Habakkuk? God is not some lifeless statue that only moves when you move Him, but He is the sovereign one moving this world to His ultimate goal. And when we have a proper picture of the only living and sovereign and almighty God on his throne, it should create a hushed awe within us. A reverential silence, speechless. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This phrase, keep silence, it's an intriguing word because it's, it's a type of word that's known as an onomatopoeia. And my high school English teacher, if she were listening today, would be so proud of me for using that word in a sermon. But for you, for you youngsters that don't know what an onomatopoeia is, it's a, basically a word that sounds like what it's representing. All right, like bang, buzz, oink, meow. And this word is an onomatopoeia. And even in the Hebrew it sounds a little bit like our word hush. Hush. And so its own soft, gentle sound emphasizes the quietness that the whole earth should have before its creator. Hush. And it's hard to miss the irony in these verses. Here are idol worshipers. They are loud and they cry out to their idols who just sit there speechless. But worshipers of God, on the other hand, are speechless and silent in His presence, awaiting His next sovereign move, awaiting the next revelation of truth if He chooses to reveal something as he sovereignly and powerfully and majestically sits on the universe's throne. And this is just such an awesome close to God's response when we consider the whole, the whole context of Habakkuk. In chapter 1, this began with Habakkuk 
questioning the silence of God. But it ends in chapter 2 with Habakkuk realizing that he needs to be silent before God. And that doesn't mean that Habakkuk was wrong to take his questions to God and to pray and to voice his concerns and, and pour his heart out. Because God is not a dumb idol. He wants to hear from his children. He responded to Habakkuk. He revealed truth to him. He taught him. He reassured him. But now Habakkuk has reached a place in God's presence where he is in such awe that he is speechless. There is this hushed amazement knowing that God has everything under control. Sometimes things grab you that are so meaningful, so powerful, so historical, that leave you feeling so small that you are speechless. Just like Walter Cronkite that day when he was reporting the Apollo 11 moon mission. And this seasoned reporter who had seen it all said, I'm speechless. Listen, when you realize that the everlasting God sits in holiness, enthroned in heaven, sovereignly guiding this universe to accomplish his purpose in spite of evil men, you should be awed to the point of silence. This quiet, reverential awe should overtake you when you feel like Habakkuk, when you truly realize that even when you have questions and you don't understand the timing and you don't realize how the pieces fit, that God is still sitting on his throne. He is not some helpless, powerless idol. This is so applicable right now, isn't it? Because we find ourselves in a world we don't recognize, in a time that we don't understand, and we question how God could be using all this. How could God be using a, a terrible virus to further his cause? How could all this economic disaster help God and further his cause? And how can this fall out to his plan and purposes? Well, we may not know all the specific answers. But when we realize who God is on his throne, we can hush and rest quietly in his arms, knowing that he's got this under control. In the meantime, the just shall live by his faith. One commentator said this, about the end of chapter 2. Now the prophet hushes himself and all the world, willing to let God act in God's time and willing to wait for God to open his mouth when God chooses. As we close this morning, have you ever been humbled? Humbled to speechlessness in God's presence. And when you consider this chapter as a whole and you consider God's heavy hand upon sin, a hush should fall upon your lips knowing that you are a sinner too. The Babylonian Empire, as powerful as she was, stood no chance against God's judgment. And neither does anyone else. We are all guilty before God. 
What in the world could a sinner possibly say in his holy presence? Each one of us would be facing impending doom if it weren't for Jesus Christ. And so should not the love and mercy and grace of Christ also leave us speechless? The fact that the Son of God left glory, left His throne, and, and became a man and took upon His shoulders your sin and your shame, and He suffered and died for you, that should leave us in awe of Him. And if you're lost, give your heart to Christ today. The almighty, sovereign God who judges sin convincingly loved you enough to offer mercy through his son. Let the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your power, glory, holiness, your presence, God, humble us to the point of this hushed awe that Habakkuk felt. Help us to live by faith as we await all your promises. And as we live in a world that we don't always understand, help us to just be awestruck at your control. And God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.